In November, NPR did an article, a piece on Advent calendars, and they titled it, Why Are Advent Calendars Everywhere? And the reason that they titled it that way is that while for decades Americans have celebrated Advent and have had perhaps a tradition of every day we're going to hang a verse of Scripture on garland like the kits that we provided to you last week. If you didn't get one, they're on the coffee table uh, in the foyer on your way out. Or perhaps you had a devotion that you, you did each day leading up to Christmas. That's something that people have done for, for ages but a lot of companies have realized, man, this is a really great way to sell a lot of stuff. And now there are advent calendars for makeup and jam and beef jerky and jewelry and pet treats. Your dog can have his own advent calendar. There's advent calendars for socks and skincare, hot sauce, candles, tea bags, gemstones, little toys, cheeses, chocolate. Those are just some of this year's possibilities. An advent calendar where every day you open up a little window or you open up a little box or you open up a little present and here's another little treat. And advent calendars were really popular, especially in Europe, uh, for years. But around World War II, when soldiers came back from Europe, they saw these and they brought them back as gifts for their family from the war, or they started to institute it as a tradition with their family. But they really became popular right after World War II. When President Eisenhower, there was this picture of he and his grandchildren opening up one of the days of their advent calendar. And suddenly this was something that everyone wanted to do, to make the Christmas season special with their family. Not long after that photo, Cadbury realized, you know, we can not only capitalize on Easter, we can capitalize on Christmas too, and they made a Cadbury advent calendar that was incredibly popular. And man, who doesn't love a reason to eat a little piece of chocolate every day for 25 days? The idea behind all of these commercially available Advent calendars is building up anticipation to Christmas Day. It's building up that anticipation to the day, the celebration. But the purpose of Advent for the church is different. Yes, we want to build up anticipation for Christmas, but it's a recognition of the fact that we're celebrating that Jesus has already come, and we're living in anticipation for his second coming. We're in the same place that the people that read the original writings and heard the original words of the prophets that Pastor Eric and Pastor Dustin read to us. They were waiting for Jesus to arrive the first time. We are similar to them in that we are waiting for Jesus to arrive again, to come back. We live in the church age which is the age between the first arrival of Christ and the second arrival of Christ. Right now, you are probably counting down the days to Christmas, and that'll end when Christmas gets here. But as Christians, we are always counting down the days to Christ's arrival. Every day is another treat. Every day is another opportunity for us to serve the Lord as we await for him to return. See, for us, the promise of the kingdom has been received, but it hasn't yet been fully realized. That's where we live right now. And there's a real similarity between where we're at in this moment 
and where the people who were receiving originally 1 Peter, this letter that Peter wrote, they were people who would put their hope and faith in Jesus. They had accepted the promise of the kingdom, but it wasn't fully realized yet. Read with me in verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that you are there to called and that you should inherit a blessing. In 1 Peter, Peter is calling us to live differently because we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. He would say in the opening chapter of this letter that you've been redeemed not with corruptible things like money, but you've been redeemed by incorruptible, the incorruptible blood of Jesus Christ. And he says because of that in chapter 2, we should live differently. We should not have the hatred of this world. We should rather desire the goodness of God and His Word instead of what this world is craving. And in chapter 3, he goes deeper in what this means on how to love one another. Chapter 2 says you should live differently and you should love others. But then chapter 3 gets into the nitty gritty, right? Because we all know that it's easy to tell someone that you love them. It's harder to show them that you love them. We all know that it's easier to say a wedding vow on your wedding day than it is to live it out 15 years later when she's driving you crazy about the Christmas decorations that you got to get down from the attic. You see, chapter 3, verse 1 is about women loving their husbands, specifically husbands who don't know Jesus. Verse 7 is about husbands showing their wives honor. Get down to the nitty-gritty of showing one another love and a long-term commitment like marriage. It, it needs power. needs hope. But he's writing to people not only that are struggling, like you and I struggle, to show one another love because we're messy and we're hard and sometimes we're difficult to love, but he's writing to a group of people that they value Jesus and they value the kingdom in the middle of a culture that does not value what they value, that does not believe what they believe. This whole chapter is about doing good for others, showing love, not just in your own family and not just to those in church, but even to your enemies, even to those who abuse you, even those who rail against you, even those who do harm against you. And it tells us don't return harm for harm. Don't return railing for railing. Show them blessing, even when they curse you. How? How are we supposed to do that? Well, this passage of Scripture shows us that the way we do that is hope. The answer is hope. I would guess that right now all of us are at different stages of being prepared for Christmas. Some of you already have your tree up and all of the gifts are already purchased and they're wrapped and under the tree. Some of you have not done any of that and you are anxious right now because I've brought this up. <laughs> Some of you will feel no anxiety though. You won't even feel anxiety on Christmas Eve when you nonchalantly head out to now buy the gifts for people for the next 
day. Even though we all respond differently to this season and how early we prepare and we have differing opinions on when is too early to listen to Christmas music or put up Christmas decorations, we all respond differently to this season. We're all currently in this season. Peter's writing to a group of people who were dealing with the age they lived in very differently than the people around them. He's mainly writing to Jewish believers who have been scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Some of them scattered before Jesus' birth and death and resurrection. Some of them scattered after that because of persecution they faced. Some of them scattered because of the Roman conquests or famines. For whatever reason, these are Jews, people who were believers in the Jewish way, but then became believers in Jesus as the fulfillment of that way. And they're living in all of these varied places. And not only are they different from everyone else because they're Jewish, they're different even from a lot of Jews because they don't hold to the old traditions like they used to. They believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. So even among their ethnic group, they're different because they're believers in the way or believers in Jesus. They're Jews outside of their homeland. And for most Jews outside of your homeland, you would go and you would find a synagogue, which would be a gathering of people who had the same values as you, a gathering of people who looked a lot like you, that ate the same foods as you. But now Jesus has come and he promises that he will bring a sword that brings division between family and friends. And that's happened for these people. And now they're not only persecuted because they're different in their origin and they're different in their look and they're different in their shade of skin. They're persecuted because they're different in their beliefs from those who even have the same shade of skin as they do. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe that he had given them freedom from their sins. They believed he was building a kingdom in the world and they were living in very hard and difficult circumstances. So, Peter says to them in verse 9, Don't render evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that you are thereunto called, that you should inherit a blessing. Peter says, Don't give the world what the world gives you. Don't turn back and give them the same thing. And as a child, I had this really major misunderstanding of the golden rule. You know, the golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I always took it to mean do unto others as they have done unto you. If my brother hit me, I can hit him. That's the golden rule. It seemed pretty golden to me. (laughs) Peter says, don't do unto others what they're doing to you. But rather when they rail against you, when they curse you, bless them. Because you have been called to that. And because you will receive a blessing for that. He gives us a little glimpse of hope there. He refers to our inheritance. And we'll get to that in a moment. But I want you to notice what the next verses say. And before I read them, I want you to notice that perhaps in your Bible or in your copy of God's Word on your phone, the next words are set apart. They're a little differently. Maybe they're italicized or the indentation is a little bit different because what Peter is going to do next is he's going to quote Psalm 34. He's going to use some words from an old song that these Jews would be familiar with, written by someone that they know about. 
He's quoting Psalm 34 to them, who's written by King David. And they know King David. King David was the king. He was the warrior king. He was the mightiest king. The other day we were driving through Boonville, and in Boonville there is a portrait of Abraham Lincoln on one of the sides of a building. And my son Lincoln goes, why is Abraham Lincoln on that building? And I said, because everybody claims Lincoln. Everybody wants to say Abraham Lincoln grew up here or walked through here or once was here because he was a great president. He was a great man. That was King David for these people. They knew King David's story. He had been a great king. But before he became king, he faced great adversity. And what's interesting about when he writes this song, he writes Psalm 34 before he becomes king, but after he's been anointed king. He writes Psalm 34 after God has said, you will be the next king of my people. And the prophet has anointed his head with oil, but there's a current king that's chasing him and wants to kill him. And so he has to leave the nation where he's supposed to be king. He's exiled from the land where he's supposed to become the one in charge. And there he's at the mercy of this foreign king, this enemy king. And he finds himself in a place where he has no alternative other than to act like he's insane. The Bible tells us that he feigns mad. He allows drool and spit to run down on his beard so that the king, the enemy king, doesn't think that he's a threat and runs him off. And in this moment, when he's supposed to be king, but he looks like a madman, when he's supposed to be king and he's been exiled, in this moment he writes Psalm 34, which contains these words. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. It opens with songs lines of praise and thanksgiving magnify the lord the lord heard me he delivered me taste and see that the lord is good these are the first opening lines of psalm 34 and then he comes to these words that peter has quoted in the passage before you in verses 10 11 and 12 for he that will love life and see good days let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil. David, the anointed king who has no kingdom, finds himself exposed and in danger. He has to humiliate himself and look like a fool, and yet he writes a song about how good God is. How? Because David believed the promise. He still believed God's promise. And he writes these words that Peter would quote hundreds of years later. David trusted in the promise that God had made him. 
and years later, Jews who were carried off into exile, people who were carried out of their homeland by conquering enemy forces, they would sing this song in their gatherings. They would remember this because even though their nation had been conquered, even though God had promised them that there was coming a Messiah, and now everything looks to be in shambles and their cities are torn down and burned, they would sing this song because even in the face of darkness, they believed the light was coming. They had hope that God was going to keep his promises. David had been anointed king, but wasn't yet king. He was in the in-between. There were seasons where the Jews found themselves exiled from their nation, and they hoped for the return one day. They were in the in-between. You and I, we have the the luxury to celebrate Jesus' first arrival, but even we find ourselves in the in-between because even though Jesus has arrived, there's still a mess out there, isn't there? There's still darkness and dread and frustration and despair and hopelessness. We're in the in-between. And we're looking toward that day when Jesus comes back and he makes all of the wrongs right. It makes all of the injustices fair. We trust in the promise that God has made us. We are in the in-between, but we have hope because we believe the promise. You see, you and I can have hope in an evil world because we know God is good. And we trust the promise. We have hope because we have hope. And this morning, if you find your hope dwindling, let me encourage you not to seek more hope, but rather to seek greater faith. Because that greater faith will give you greater hope. We have hope because we have faith. But I want you to recognize with me this morning that to experience this hope, we must have humility. Tim Keller pointed out in a reflection on Christmas that some gifts are humbling to receive. If your husband gives you a treadmill for Christmas, that might be a little humbling to receive. If your wife gives you a nose and ear hair trimmer, that might be a little humbling to receive. It might take some humility to accept that gift. To accept the gift and the hope that God gives requires humility on our part. And this is counterintuitive because when things are down, when the odds are against us, when it feels that the inevitable is coming, we think what we need is to be inspired. We need to be told that we can do it. We need to be told that we're stronger than we realize. That the odds are going to be in our favor. That we're going to have the one in a million shots. Scripture doesn't tell us that we can have hope because we're so great. Scripture tells us that we can have hope because He's so great. And we need Him. In fact, the more we read in Scripture and the more we come to believe His promises, the more we recognize our desperation. 
In fact, if you read Scripture, you start to realize it's worse than I knew. It's worse than I realized. But I can have hope because He's better than I knew. And I'm more loved than I realized. You see, if Christmas is just a nice story, it just has the impact of one of those Christmas movies you might watch on Hallmark this season. You know, the ones that every plot is exactly the same. It's just a story. And it might be cozy to turn on while you're sipping on some hot chocolate and enjoying the Christmas tree, but it doesn't make a real difference in your life. Christmas isn't just a nice story about a baby who's born in a stable. Christmas is the story of our rescue. It's for that reason that Peter would say in verse 18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Christmas is the story of Jesus arriving to rescue us because we desperately needed His rescue. But we can't accept that rescue unless we're humble enough to receive it. Unless we have the humility to recognize we desperately need Him to save. Not too long ago, I received a rebuke from a friend. Someone pointed out a deficiency in me. And it wasn't pleasant. I didn't enjoy hearing it. And I had the choice in that moment to to justify my actions, to explain away, well, the reason I did that is because of this. That rebuke can be a gift if I'm humble enough to receive it. If I'm humble enough to recognize you're right. I did drop the ball there. I need God to work on me in that area. When we have faith, it provides hope And humility makes it possible for us to accept this hope. And when this is true of our lives, we can live out what Peter calls us to in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. Look at 15 with me. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. This verse calls us to sanctify the Lord God. And to sanctify means to consecrate, means to make it holy. We believe that everyone is, who has put their faith in Jesus is instantly justified. Remember, we've talked about this. You are immediately justified. It's like you stand before God in that moment. He does not see your sins. You are made righteous. You're instantly justified, but you're progressively sanctified. You become more and more like Jesus. Here, this passage is calling us to sanctify the Lord God. Obviously, He is already holy. He doesn't need to be made holy. How are we to sanctify the Lord God? When we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, 
what we're doing is we're recognizing just how holy and powerful and awesome He is in our hearts. In our hearts, we're getting clearer on who He is, how mighty He is, how holy He is. We're gaining a greater appreciation for His goodness. It's like driving towards the mountains. If you've been on a trip and the mountains are in the distance, at first they seem like just little bumps on the horizon. But the farther you go, the bigger they get. And eventually you find yourself at the foot of the mountain and it's all you can see. And the nature of that mountain did not change, only your perspective of that mountain. And as the Lord becomes clearer and clearer in our hearts and minds, as our perspective on Him is more and more appropriate and fitting, He becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And you know what happens when God gets bigger and bigger in your heart and in your life? Everything else gets smaller. Your troubles are smaller. Your worries are smaller. And so Peter can say to these people who are living in adverse circumstances, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be worried by their threats, he says in verse 14. Don't let the world's troubles get big in your heart and mind and make God a small. Rather, let God be large in your heart and mind and it will make the world's troubles small. And when the world's troubles are the appropriate size and God's goodness and His power and His holiness is the appropriate size, what we're filled with is hope. We shouldn't be afraid of the world. Rather, instead, we should stand in awe and wonder of God. And this is a season for us to do that. This is a season for us to stand in awe and wonder of the goodness of God. That Christ came here to save us from our sins. And as we reflect, as we sing about, as we celebrate our hearts will be filled with hope. A hope that is, can't be missed. A hope that causes the world to come and ask, what's different? What's different? Peter assumes that people will come and ask these Jewish believers, tell me. Tell me about this hope that you have. Tell me about this peace that you have. Peter doesn't tell them to have this hope and peace. He believes that it will, it will happen naturally. He tells them to be ready to talk about it. To tell others about it. This morning we find ourselves in the in-between. We find ourselves in the in-between in a day that's dark and full of desperation and frustration. And Christmas comes along and it doesn't seem to make it any better, does it? It seems to be another reason for people to be anxious and frustrated. It seems to be another reason for there not to be enough to go around. Not enough money, not enough time, not enough energy. 
should not be that for us. This should be a season that we are filled with hope. Because though we're in the in-between, we have faith and we believe in His promise. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.